Welcome to the Future of Australia podcast, where your host, Derek Stewart, interviews the entrepreneurs and founders running the 100 fastest growing new businesses in Australia. On episode 56, I speak with Jared McGrath, the founder and CEO of Smart WFM. We discuss how he started multiple businesses as a teenager, from a disco to an online art auction, and why he quickly discovered the truth about people and business ethics, what he learned from his early business failures, and why he's so passionate about unlocking the potential of humans and using technology to drive it, how he started Smart WFM, growing 61% last financial year to do over $4 million in annual revenue make it one of the fastest growing new businesses in Australia. If you're looking for a boutique consultancy focused on empowering the workforce now and into the future to stay relevant in a time of rapid disruption and digital advancement, check out smartwfm.com. That's S-M-A-R-T-W-F-M.com or his personal website, jaredmcgrath.com. That's J-A-R-R-O-D-M-C. G-R-A-T-H dot com. So I'm here with Jared McGrath, the founder and CEO of Smart WFM. Thanks for coming on the podcast, Jared. Yeah, pleasure, Derek. Pleasure to be here today. So can you tell us what were you doing before you started Smart WFM? What did you study? What type of companies or roles were you working in? So I grew up in country New South Wales in a town called Bathurst, and many people would know Bathurst because it's very famous for a motor racing track that's there, Mount Panorama, that hosts one of the most famous motor car races in the world. And I love cars and I'm an absolute car nut, um, but probably a story for another day. Um, but yeah, mum, but funnily enough, mum and dad met each other in the Holden dealership in Bathurst and dad was a Holden motor mechanic and mum worked in the accounts department. And uh, that's sort of you know, my, my upbringing, really, it was around um, people, a lot of people that were very practical type people, a lot of uh, working class, uh, skilled labourers, electri- electricians, mechanics, cheap metal workers. Um, you know, they're all still a lot of my best mates today. And, and uh, it was a wonderful place to grow up. And, uh, you know, mum and dad always gave me the opportunity to be myself and always supported everything that I did. So, so, and, and the story sort of unfolds from there. I, I remember I was like one of the first people to get a, a, a Commodore computer when they came out. They came out in the, in the 1980s and I, I was always destined to do something with computers in some way, shape or form. And I remember dad was at university because he went back to uni because he didn't want to become uh, or come home dirty as a a motor mechanic all the time. And he thought, what do I love? And he thought, I love kids and I love teaching and I love to give back. So he became a, a primary school teacher. And he was at uni and and he came home one day and he said, Son, there's some students that need to have their assignments typed up. Would you be interested in doing it for them? Because I had one of the first computers and I had one of the first dot matrix printers and 
the way we got colour printing, because there was no colour printers at the time, is there was the, the printers used to work using typewriter ribbons. And, and you know, go and Google typewriter for all the young people on the, <laughs> on, on the podcast today. And you could get typewriter ribbons in different colours, black, red, blue. So I used to run the, the documents through the printer a number of times and have a different coloured typewriter ribbon in so we could get colour. And I started uh, word processing, typing assignments for, for students and started making a few bucks doing that. That was my first sort of entry into, I suppose, what people would call entrepreneurship. Going on from there, I, I had a discotheque in the 1980s, so I'm sort of showing my age <laughs> now. And I've always considered myself a pioneer. And to me, a pioneer is just someone that gets out and tries something, just gives it a go. It, it might work, it might not, but it doesn't really matter. It's just about pioneering something, something, something that you're passionate about. And, and I, because I had that love of computers, I digitised my whole music collection that I used to have available for the people that would come along to my discos and I sort of laugh these days when I see streaming services like Spotify or Deezer or things like that because, you know, I sort of feel that in the, in the 1980s I, I sort of pioneered making flexible music selection available and, and digitised it, you know, to use today's words. Then in the 90s I started one of the world's first online art auction businesses and I... I could see a gap and I've always had a passion for art. I love the arts. I love visual arts. I'm a very visual person myself. And I, I could see that there was this wonderful opportunity to actually auction art via the internet. And I, I partnered with someone that had been selling traditional art via traditional art auction for many, many years. And, and we took it online. And I remember at the time the established auction houses like Sotheby's and Christie's and Bonham's and, all of those auction houses went, this will never work. You can never do it. You can never take it online. And, I, again, I, I laugh and I look back today and I, I look at all of these blockchain pieces of art that are selling mm. today on the <laughs> internet for whatever, you know, yeah. $100 million dollars yeah. or whatever. Yeah. And, and I look back at the traditional businesses and think, yeah, well, you know, very interesting view of the world that they had. And, and so I've always done things. I've always been in business to some degree and then in the in the 2000s I again I I consider I, I pioneered making effective workforce management consulting skills available to to corporate organizations and by this stage I'd finished uni um, and I'll come back to what I studied at uni in a minute but but I I'd finished uni and could see this great opportunity for organisations, corporates, to, to be able to more effectively manage their workforces. And a lot of these skills that might seem obvious that you could go and get at a, at a big four consulting company or any consulting company specialises in people, you just couldn't get them in, in the 2000s in, in a very open sort of a way. So, again, I went into partnership with a, uh, a big ERP services business and, and we pioneered making these consulting services available on, online. And, oh, sorry, not online, but, you know, to, to big corporate organisations. And, and again, 
we, we broke down partnering and, you know, I built a pretty substantial business there. It probably had, when I exited my share of the partnership, it was probably up to about 100 staff across Pacific, across North America, um, and, and it was really enjoyable. And, and then I, I won't talk about my current business, Smart WFM, right now, but I'll, I'll sort of talk about what I studied at uni as well and, and how it all sort of somewhat in a really weird sort of a way ties into everything that I do today. So at, at uni, I, 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 as I said, I grew up in Bathurst and I was, I was very comfortable. I had my disco and I was able to live a very good life and Bathurst was a big education town, had a university, and so I sort of thought, well, I'm going to go to uni in Bathurst, I'm going to keep doing my disco, I'm going to play the music, and I wasn't really sure what I wanted to do, but I always sort of knew I liked computers and I always liked maths. So there was a course called Industrial Mathematics and Computing, and and, and funnily enough, I failed the HSC. My, my marks were appalling i think in the days that i did the hsc we were marked out of 500 and i think the marks i got was about 200 out of 500 my marks were terrible and i didn't have enough marks to get into uni why was that were you so distracted with all these side projects were you not engaged were you you know chasing girls what 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 was sort of what what created your marks um well it's all probably related to the to the discussion that we've had already on mm. this call like school was the most bottom of the pile thing on, <laughs> on my list I, I did mm. not care about it it wasn't mm. relevant to me mm. I had all of these other things that I was doing and as well as that I, I wasn't probably good at conforming and school for me was just the wrong place for me because you know McGrath put your tie on McGrath do this <laughs> McGrath be at this place at this time, McGrath, you know, do what I tell you to do, McGrath, go and rope learn this. <laughs> and I couldn't stand it. I, I couldn't stand it. So so I, school was just not a priority. But, but I, I was lucky that Dad knew someone at the university. He went up and spoke to them. Um, and, you know, lo and behold, I, I got a spot at, at uni. And, and I'm glad to this day, you know, that Dad did go up to uni and I don't know who he spoke to or what he said, but I was I was lucky enough to to get in and and so I studied industrial mathematics and computing and it was so esoteric at the time. It was so like just not real. Like the sort of maths we studied was, you know, how do you mathematically represent the flow of water through a hopper or something like this that was I suppose relevant if you're in a manufacturing organisation or thereabouts. And, and funnily enough, though, I, I studied things like artificial intelligence as well. And when I studied AI, it was so in its infancy and so um, archaic almost when you look at it. And you think of some of those old school computers that you see, you know, with people like John McCarthy even, you know, the pioneer of artificial intelligence. and He's sitting in like front of this big old IBM computer with a black and white photo. And that's what it felt like. That's what artificial intelligence really felt like when I did it. But, but a, a lot of the mathematics I studied was this area of mathematics called operations research. And, it, and again, it was all quite strange, quite esoteric at the time. But if I describe it today, that 
this mathematics was all about, here's a, a mathematical problem that I've got and how do you use mathematics to solve it? And, and I'll give you a real example. Mm-hmm. So I'm at a supermarket and we've all had this challenge. We all walk into a supermarket and the queues are so long and you look at them and you how could these queues be so long? Like why are the, the, the checkout operators the right number and why is this queue longer than that queue? And you look at this as, as, a, as, a, as just a, a common sense and, and this is what this area of mathematics called operations research uh, studies and, and solves, solves those sorts of problems. But at the time, we didn't use it in that context. We, it was much more theoretical than that. But, uh, you know, when we start talking about Smart WFM and, and what I did, you'll, you'll see that there's a link to all of these things that I've now been talking about as to my background. Did, did you ever have a salaried job or were you, again, you were creating these little side ventures when you were in high school, then you went to uni and then essentially you went straight into business? Have you ever been a, a sort of salaried employee at any point? <laughs> yeah, so the way I've been talking, like, you know, you'd think I've always been successful. Um, <laughs> it was, and I say successful in terms of money and, you know, the perceived view of success. But some of those businesses that I talk about, they were terrible flops financially. They, they were diabolical, you know. Like, I, 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 but I learned so much along the way. I, 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 you know, and I'll give, I'll give you a couple of examples. Like, so, so the, the art business that I had, I, I went into that with a chap that had been in art for as long as you could imagine. He, he auctioned art for a long, long time. And, and that particular partner that I had, he taught me everything not to do. Like he, his, he had no ethics whatsoever. He was, he, he had oil up to the up to his armpits, and anything that touched his arms just slid straight off. <laughs> he was, he was everything that I'm not. And and some of the things that I saw him do, and some of you know, still sit with me today is. Is just terribly unethical. He used to do pictures and and paint pictures, and he and he'd sign them Joe King. Mm. Get it? Joe yeah, King. yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. And he'd go and auction them, yeah. and and people would buy these pictures. And you know that's probably you know one of the one of the pleasant stories that I could tell you <laughs> about the way that this this chap um, conducted himself. But 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 that business taught me so much about people it taught me so much about going into partnership with someone it taught me so much about giving away a percentage of my business I owned that whole business myself and he was shrewd enough this guy to say well if you're going to use my network to get art to auction then you are going to give me half of your business and at this stage I was only relatively young at the time and and to me that seemed like a good thing to do but in the end, I never qualified the guy. He was a crook. <laughs> and, and so here I am of the, of the highest integrity, you know, with the most wonderful <clears throat> background, with the most wonderful upbringing that I could ever have, with parents that are so honest and just lived their whole life to help other people. And here I am stuck with this crook. And it was like, you know, once I'd, once I'd sort of distilled all of this and worked it out in my mind, because this art business that I was building 
I could see was going to be something that was just incredible. Like I could see we could pioneer across the globe taking art auction online and, and be as big as some of these or Christie's or Bonham's or any of those art businesses. But I knew in my heart I had to go. I had to get out of it. And, and when I got out of that business, I had no money left. Like my wife and I had some savings at the time and all my money was gone and my wife had some money in the bank from when I'd met her and we used that to sort of resurrect ourselves from the appalling situation that we're in. So, and, and then at that time, I went back and got a salary job. So I had to. I, there was nothing else I could do. I, I had, you know, we just had a family and we just started our life together, our married life together, and it put some pretty serious strain under our relationship in the early days as well. But, but you know, as a pioneer, I think you have to just take the good with the bad. But I look back at that life experience today and I'll, and I'll, I'll draw some parallels when we talk about Smart WFM and, and show you how those life experiences were so relevant to me being a, a more mature businessman today than what I was way back then. Yeah, and, and so um, what? speaking of Smart WFM, what, how did that sort of begin? Like you said, you've done these different businesses. You learn the, the hard gap between inventing an idea and commercialising it is often a big sort yeah. of area where a lot of great ideas die in, in, in the middle. So how did you decide to sort of start Smart WFM? And it wasn't your first business. You dabbled, like you said, with mixed sort of success. What was it like that moment where you decided to start um, Smart WFM and what was the first year of running it like? So it, it sort of, it started about probably 18 months before I actually incorporated the company. And I was a partner in a very, very successful human capital business. And I was responsible for this area that's known as workforce management that I spoke about pioneering, partnering and enabling consulting services to be available to organisations. And it was around the whole time that cloud computing was becoming very prevalent. And the business that I was in started basically heading down a product sales path. And, and I'd always worked in consulting businesses, right? So it's, it's probably an important thing for, for the listener to consider. I'm not a product pioneer. I don't write products. I don't build products. I'm not an Atlassian, for example. I, I have always worked in service-related businesses. We provide services to organisations across the globe, large and small, that want to maximise the value of their, of their people. That, that's what I've always done. So, so, so a service business is very different to a product business. But, but so, the, so the, the service business that I've worked in started to take a product sales path. And, and that wasn't for me. I didn't necessarily believe that that was where I wanted to head. And as well as that, I could see that the whole way in which people in organisations, their skills and businesses, business operating models had to change because of a result of digitisation. It wasn't it wasn't like you just take that old word processing business that I had in the, you know, 1980s and just digitise it. It wasn't like just putting a, a new Microsoft Word in. It, it, it was about reinventing the whole 
operating model of your business, the whole way in which you engage with the customer, the whole way in which you engage with your staff, the whole way in which you deliver a product or a service. And, and I had some, because of all my life experiences with business, because of my background in mathematics, in artificial intelligence, because I'd always had a very digital mindset, I was sitting back at the time thinking, oh, at last, it's only taken 30 years to get here, you know, because <laughs> this is what I sort of always wanted business to be from when I was a young kid. But the technologies, the people, the mindsets, the processes, the, the working environments, it just wasn't at that level of maturity. So, so my service businesses that I was a partner in was doing really well at the time. And I thought if there's ever a time to get out, it's when it's doing well. So, so I exited out of that business at the time, uh, divested my share of the partnership back to the principles of the business. And, and I didn't know exactly what I wanted to do when I divested, but I knew that I wanted to do something in my own right. I'd always had partners in businesses and I thought, you know what, as if, if you're in a business with a partner, you're only as fast or only as strong as the partner with the weakest or slowest link. And, and I'm, I'm a bit of a cat on a hot tin roof. I move quick. I'm very decisive. And I thought, Smart WFM, I'm going to do it myself. I'm, I'm actually going to, to bootstrap this business and I'm actually going to make, it, to make it work. And I made a very conscious decision that I didn't want partners. And including that, I didn't want private equity. I didn't want venture capital. I, I, I just, for, for me, I knew I had to give it a go by myself. And, and again, I'm not a product business, right? So, so I could sort of make ends meet and make it work around consulting services. Because with consulting, you know, you do something, you provide a service to someone, and then you get paid for it. And you know, you've got to do it well, you've got to do it with quality. But if you do that, you can grow organically. And that's what I did. So, as well as that, the area of business that I worked in was what's known as workforce management. And if I would describe that to the listener of this podcast in, in a way that would make sense to them, there's two parts to it, really. Number one is we make sure people get paid correctly. So I'm a, I'm a butcher in the supermarket. I'm a, I'm a triage nurse at the emergency ward at the hospital. I'm a... Um, a process worker on a manufacturing line at a bread-making facility, right? So we work with all of those types of businesses and we make sure that those businesses are compliant and they pay their people what they're entitled to. And so you see a lot of it in the news at the moment, especially in Australia, another underpayment scandal. You know, big business ABC underpays their staff $60 million per annum. We help businesses with that. And if you think about that, that's very tightly uh, coupled with payroll and that's very mathematical. So it, it sort of ties to my background quite well. But the other part of what we do, and this is the fascinating part of my job and the bit that I really, really love, is that we actually help organisations, big and small, 
become more productive and more efficient around the way in which the workforce operates within the organisation. And and so if I take a real simplistic example again, and and I'll, I'll pick up on the same one I used before. I'm a supermarket. We have people coming into the supermarket and they need to go to the checkout to buy their groceries, right? We make sure that the checkouts have the right number of operators on them with the right skills to ensure that the throughput of that sales volume that's coming at the checkout is maximised to minimise or maximise to ensure that the sales revenue that comes into the cash register for the organisation is as great as it can be. But we also look at the cost of the people at the cash registers and we look to minimise that. So we do two things. We maximise throughput or revenue and we minimise cost. So... So, and again, that's very much ties itself to a lot of the mathematics, a lot of the operations research, and these days a lot of the artificial intelligence that I study at university as well. So, so is there a reason like um, a self-serve at the um, supermarket is often everyone lines up and you go to the next available till, but the individual operator lines, they're often discrete lines, right? It's not like the banks in the old days where you'd all be behind the velvet rope and you'd all funnel to the tellers. Is that a strategic design on purpose and that's part of that sort of process that you would manage or is that just different industries sometimes have different processes or like an airline, right? Everyone's in one big queue and then they go to the next available kind of shootout at the end versus, you know, at a lot of grocery stores, people just uh, discrete lines. It's not a master sort of queue that feeds into the, the checkout. So you probably notice as you're, as you're talking to me, because we've got the video on, I've got a smile on my face when you say all of that. And and all as I would say is that there is still a lot of room for improvement across the globe in all industries to get that right. And, and again, that, that's what we help organisations do. And the reality is, is that most organisations still work on hierarchical, old-fashioned operating models that have been there for over 100 years now since the Second Industrial Revolution. And before you can get to that level of maturity that we've just been speaking about, you actually have to fundamentally change the mindsets of the way in which those organisations work because so many of those organisations still think that good is good enough, but good is not good enough anymore. You, you have to be improving all the time. And, and again, this is the digital conundrum that a lot of organisations are stuck in at the moment. Too many organisations have the mindset, the leadership team, the skills that are still in that 100-year-old way of operating, but they need to transform to a modern way of operating, thinking about people, technology and the supporting environments that, that, that encompass all of that. So, so when you started the business, was it hard to get people? You say, look, I'll, I'll um, increase productivity by X amount. I'll increase profit by Y amount. Here's why. Here's the logic. Here's the maths. But like you said, the hierarchy, the culture, the risk aversion, did that make it in somewhat a hard sell, hard to get people signed up? Or is it just some people get it, some people don't? You obviously focus on the clients who get it, care about it, you know, want to improve and you can't sort of preach to the unconvertible. I'll answer that question in a couple of parts because there's a couple of interesting stories to tell in that. So I guess the first part is that because I've sort of 
been doing this for so long now, I've been able to see literally hundreds of programs of work undertaken in all sorts of industries all across the globe. And, and what I was able to distill is that the process to get this right is exactly the same. But most organisations don't have the knowledge that they need to get it right. And I include the consultancies that go and advise customers in this space. Most of their staff do not have the skills that they require. And, and this is a big reason why I wrote my book, The Digital Workforce. So this book is all about effective workforce management, maximising the value of people, ensuring that productivity is right, ensuring that cost is right, ensuring that businesses are compliant. And, and this, in many respects, is a textbook. It's the whole thing's written through the eyes of a customer. And it's how does a customer have to engage to get this right? And believe it or not, there's no books anywhere on the planet that talk about how to do that. And and again, I consider myself a pioneer in writing this book as well, again, because I've just had the experience of life. It's not that I'm any smarter or dumber than anyone else. It's just the fact that I've had all of these life experiences that enabled me to do this. And so, so, I was just going to say, so what's an example where, like you said, people are, are getting it wrong? Is it, again, they're managing, they've set up their employee structures, shifts, pay, that's easy for the business, but it creates bad outcomes for the customers, like in terms of, again, people lining up in a store or engaging with other businesses. Um, and how is sort of the digital aspect of that change? Is it that remote delivery technology um, software? What's sort of the, the problem? And then how has the, the digital aspect changed the, the workforce? So, so it, look, it can be any of the above at, at the end of the day, but, but anecdotally, and, and there's been a big shift um, towards a people-centric leadership philosophy, especially over the last couple of years. But if I would answer that question going back five or six years ago, most of it was driven by cost, right? Just reduce the cost. Just take all the cost out that you can. If the customer experience isn't quite right, if the employee experience isn't quite right, it doesn't really matter. Just, just cut the cost so that we can maximise this, this, the shareholder return. So, so that's where a lot of it was driven from. And then a, a lot of it as well, I think that let's, let's say that's one big bucket. The other big bucket was driven from, it depends how I want to word it and who I sort of <laughs> speak to, but let's say it's skills or ignorance, right? A lot of senior leadership teams would just go, we've got a technology layer to make sure that our people are getting paid correctly and we're, we're compliant. So because we've got a technology layer, it has to be right. But the reality is with complex, very complex EBAs like we have in Australia and very complex awards, these things change every day, every week, in every industry across our country. So you can't lead with a philosophy of ignorance. You, you, you actually have to be understanding what is going on every day. So this comes back to skills and skills education. So, so it, it's not a one-size-fits-all answer, but, but, it, so, but I can go into an organisation and I can assess within minutes where it fits in, in, in the sort of the maturity 
um, continuum. And, and a lot of that is what I write about in, in the book. And it's obviously, you know, like I said, getting cut through, it's working. Um, the business grew 61% last year, doing over $4 million in annual sales. So was it, you know, more people getting on board? Was it, you know, a new way you explained to people and then it clicked in their head? Was it, like you said, a bit of a changing tide and customer focus, not just Costco? What was that sort of big growth driver in the business that allowed you to become one of the fastest growing new businesses in Australia? Yeah, so I, I never went into the business going, Smart WFM has going, is going to have this revenue forecast. What, what I went into the business doing was knowing that there was a pain point in the market. And, and again, if I just sort of sum, sum it up at a really high level, it was around that sort of making sure people were paid correctly and making sure that those organisations were productive. So that, that was the pain point. And, and I knew that there was a lot of business out there that had that sort of pain. And, and I would say to any... CEO listening to this podcast today, I'd say just give yourself a mark between one and ten of where you sit in that in that value um, between you know your your level of maturity, and and they would know themselves where they where they sat. And most CEOs that would be listening to this today would know that there's a lot of opportunity for improvement in, in their business. So so there's definitely a pain point there, and and then. Secondly, though, so there, there's a business problem, but, but you've actually got to be able to, to, to solve this business problem for people. So, so to solve the business problem, you've got to do two things. You've got to get your message out there about what you do, and you've got to have people that can actually help you deliver on your brand promise of how you can go and help those organisations. So, so if I take the, the second one first around how do you deliver on your brand promise, I need good people in the organisation. So the way I get good people in the organisation is I give them an environment where they can be themselves. And there's all sorts of rhetoric in the market at the moment about great resignation, great inflation, you know, I don't know what you want. But, but the reality is if you want to get good people, you've got to be true to yourself. That includes me and that includes the people that come and work for us and we've got to be true to our customers and we've got to be able to show them a career path, not in the old 100-year-old way of operating. We've got to be able to show them a career path and a new digital way of operating. And it's not using old traditional hierarchies, for example. It's using network-based approach to, to leading, empowering people in your business. So we've got to be able to attract those right people into our business. And once we've got the people in our business, we then are able to go and solve these problems for businesses and again, that's where the digital workforce, the book, comes into play. So we don't have a sales team. We, we do all of our selling through digital marketing and through word of mouth, 100% of it. 100% of it is through a digital approach to business. We don't do old school selling techniques. We don't cold call customers. That, to me, I, you know, I know businesses still do it, but I, it, our business, I, I can't see we could ever do anything like that. We just provide rich content to the market. We are the best at what we do. We are at the forefront of, of where the human capital space, the people space is going across the globe, and we get that message out there and we amplify it using digital technology. You know, someone said to me the other day, they said, are you a human capital management 
consultancy and I had a bit of a laugh and I said, I think we're actually a digital marketing company. <laughs> and, 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 you know, we're a digital marketing company that happens to do HCM really, really, really well. Mm. And, and so uh, has the media sort of landscape promoting or I guess revealing how many companies are mismanaging their human capital, the, the underpayment issues you talked about, resignation? I mean, does that drive a lot more conversations or inbound inquiries? Because like you said, maybe some CEOs are suddenly asking hard questions of their team of, well, how mature is our sort of um, people management and our technology? And is that, have you seen that in sort of, as a rising sort of trend and, and getting more cut through there? I, I have. And and what we've been able to successfully do is engage with the CEOs and the senior leadership of organisations to give them a very, very consumable framework that I, that I documented in the book that actually enables them to go and have these discussions with their finance department, with their operating department, with their IT department and, and with HR, and they're able to wrap all of this because to solve all of this in a business, this isn't a matter of going and talking to one department. This is actually changing the whole operating model of your business. And the operating model, if it's not underpinned with the digital footprint, forget it. You're never going to get it. So, so that's what we specialise in doing. And, it, and it's a very, it, it's, it's a niche that, that we work in, but it's a it's a very high value add niche to organisations. And I'd like to just put another little sort of footnote on all of this as well. A lot of the, the media that you see today is around, you know, we have to digitise, we, we have to empower our teams, we have to, um, you know, build this culture of work from home, we have to do all of this. A lot of that media and a lot of that press is from a very, very small percentage of organisations that can actually do it. Most organisations are full of operational workers, frontline workers. I, I saw a statistic and had a discussion with a senior business leader in India earlier in the week. 95% of all the workforce in India is frontline workers. So when you hear a lot of this, you know, work from home, it's only a very privileged few that can actually work from home. So, so what, what we really focus on doing is not just the work from home piece, but how do you actually get your operating models right for the 95% of the workforce that actually still has to go to that physical location, the factory, the hospital, the, the bread making plan. So, so and, and that's a real passion of mine. So, and, and, and there's a big, starting to be a big trend now. I've, I've always been passionate about this. Think about what I was telling you. You know, my parents and all my mates were sort of blue-collar workers, right? I've always been very in tune with the operational workforce because that's, let's face it, what drives economies. It's what drives GDP. And, and so I've always been very, very in tune with this. And that's the next big growth area when it comes to people, it's it's like knowledge workers are important and and they help drive growth in tech industries, mm -hmm. for example. And you see a lot of media around that in Australia at the moment, and I and I applaud it. But it's only a, a small part of our country's GDP, and most of our country's GDP is actually made up from from the manufacturers, the the, the people at the at the coalface. So so 
that's where I focus as well. And and so so again, these are the sort of frameworks. This is the type of work that we do, and 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 we do it all in a way that's um, repeatable. We're, we're we're productizing all the work that we do as well. So remember, I said we weren't a product company, but we deliver all our services in a repeatable way that's scalable. We we don't operate ourselves off a traditional hierarchical working model. We 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 base we we operate off a networked operating model that empowers teams, and those teams are specialists in all of the types of things that we've been talking about on this podcast, and we can deploy them across the globe in minutes. It's it's a little bit like when you watch some of those sci-fi shows, and you've got the you know the starship Galactica mm. or whatever, <laughs> see all of these little pods come out, right? That's the way our business works. We we we're smart. WFM is like the the the, the Starship Enterprise, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and we distribute pods all around the world in real time with the best skills and the best talent from right across the globe. And it's it's all of this that drives our business growth. It's it's all about working in a really modern, efficient, effective way that empowers people to be themselves. Gets the best out of them, out of them. Delivers on our brand promise of being an employer of choice. Delivers on our brand promise of being able to help organisations across the globe with frontline workers and knowledge workers to be product to be product productive, compliant, have the best customer and employee experiences. That that's what we do, and we lead with a people centric philosophy every day, and and that's what that's what accelerates and drives the growth of the business and it's it's an amazing journey that we're on and it's uh it's a lot of fun yeah and and so you've always been it feels very focused on the future like you're talking about digital music you know long before spotify and digital art long before the the nfts and all that e-commerce and you know all these sort of ai obviously um so looking at the future now being seeing all these trends and talking to business owners every day um, what trends do you see in entrepreneurship, um, you know, sort of in the future? Is Australia well positioned for the future? Is Australia lagging behind other areas? And, you know, the future might sort of um, not be as sort of successful as it is now. Like, I guess, what? how do you see um, Australia's sort of future entrepreneurship trajectory versus that of maybe other markets and comparable sort of regions? So I'll, I'll just answer that through my observations. Uh, because I, I find that yeah, I can go and read all the theory and, you know, I could Google it and <laughs> regurgitate whatever I get off Google. But but from, from my observations, there's been a massive shift in business over the last couple of years to lead with a people-centric philosophy. And, and the pandemic really accelerated that for a lot of people. And when I was doing the interviews for for my book, I interviewed one of the CEOs from one of the, well, one of the largest human capital consulting firms in the world. And he said to me something that was quite profound. He said, we as an organisation, and and they've got about 10,000 staff globally, he said, we as an organisation found that when the pandemic hit, we had to take far more a far more a nurturing uh, view of our people than what we've perhaps had to take in the past because 
the policymakers and the governments just couldn't move quick enough to do what people needed to do. So they did all sorts of things in their business to help people and their families, which extended far beyond the boundaries of what a traditional business would be expected to do for someone. But they did it because they knew they had to. It's as simple as that. And and there are more and more businesses that are starting to work like that these days. And, and that CEO was telling me that he had spoken to a number of the other big CEOs in, in the US as well, global um, logistics providers and retailers and all sorts, and they all just did it because they knew they had to. And, and for me, that's just music to my ears. That's entrepreneurship. In, in my mind, you know, it's like you just got to be prepared to get on and do it and just give it a go. And and so that's that's what I think that the first pillar of, of entrepreneurship is just just help people. If, if you lead and you go about life with the people centric philosophy and you can help people, their families, society and ultimately the environment, you, you've got a really sustainable business into the future. And. And a lot of CEOs are starting to lead with that mindset now. And I'm actually in the process of writing my, my second book at the moment, which I'm calling The Modern CEO. And it's all about exploring all of this and taking all of this knowledge and putting together a playbook for CEOs so that they can almost follow the bouncing ball of how others have done this across the globe and how that they can essentially future-proof prove themselves and their businesses to be sustainable into the future. So I think that's the first sort of pillar of, of entrepreneurship. And, and then the, the second pillar is just the, the dollars and cents have to hang together, right? Now, I, I always look at dollars and cents as a, as a secondary item, but let's face it, you've got to have them. You, you can't run any business and you can't look after people if you don't have the money. So, so my example that I gave you at the, at the top of this podcast was I decided that I was going to basically fund Smart WFM myself so that I could get on and make quick decisions and, and just be decisive and move and look at that bigger picture and that people-centric philosophy. So, so. I'll answer the second part of the financial in sort of two halves. Don't feel as an entrepreneur that you have to go and get VC or you have to go and get private equity to be successful. And don't feel that you have to build another world-leading product. If, if you've got something that you know is a pain point for someone, just go and fill the gap. Just go and fill the gap. In the first instance, do it in your spare time. Do it on the side, people call it side hustles these days, whatever, just, just go and fill the gap. And if it's meant to work, it will work. And, and, and don't feel that you have to be what the media perceives you have to be to be a successful entrepreneur. Like if I had to go into one of those startup incubators or go and pitch to a VC, I, I would be the worst one to do it. I, I'd be the first one out of my <laughs> ear because I, I wouldn't, basically present in the formula that they wanted to hear, right? Because my view of growth is not about showing an exponential growth trajectory. 
that someone wants to see on a spreadsheet, on a piece of paper, so that they know that they can flip that business in point, at point in time and get a return on it, right? To me, that's not true entrepreneurship. It's a style of entrepreneurship. It's not my style of entrepreneurship. My style of entrepreneurship is just slow burn and look after people the whole way along. It's, 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 they're, they're both valid. They're both relevant, but it's just a different philosophy to the way I, I see entrepreneurship. And then the second side of it is my experiences of, of, of a startup in Australia, you're on your own. I don't see anyone outside of myself that's been able to help me. And, and I, it, I ha, I've had to, 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 to make every single thing work. In this business myself, I haven't got a, I haven't got any credible leads in government, or I've not been able to tease out any form of grants or anything like that. It's a minefield. I don't know how people work their way through it, and I, you know, quite frankly, I just think there's so much to be done in that space. But I can't tell you any more than that, except that I've just had to just fight hard the whole time to, you know, to, to keep the machine working. Um, so, again, there's, there's a great opportunity to do something there. But, you know, my view in that space is I'm just going to keep doing what I do with Smart WFM mm. and get the message out there of what we do and I'll, I'll leave that for someone else to sort out. Yeah, and um, and so looking back, like you said, you had different always um, innovative ideas and business and, and a passion for that. What advice would you give to someone who's sort of 18 or 20 years old at the moment? Maybe they've finished high school, they're thinking about uni or they're studying something, but they maybe they like it, but they don't know where it goes, or maybe they know where it goes, but they don't like it, like a more sort of career-focused course. What, what advice would you give someone like that um, who's that age right now and at that interesting pivot point in their life? I'd probably just use the same example that I, I used earlier. Like I was... Yeah, the stereotype. I was a high school dropout. Like I, I wasn't a, a, a success in the true sense of what uh, some people would deem as the definition of success. Give it a go. But the thing I love about the young people of today is that they're inquisitive. They're so, so, so inquisitive, and I, and I just love it because a lot of generations that have been around for a while, including mine. The inquisitive, the inquisitive nature seems to have disappeared for some reason. But you grab a young person today that's even in high school, my, my teenage kids or someone that's at university or someone that's in the first or second year of work, they are so inquisitive and they just ask the questions. Oh, why, why did you do this? Why do you do that? Why do you do this? And, and the innocence is actually priceless and gold to the future. And so I just encourage all talent, um, but especially young talent, especially young people, just be yourselves and just be inquisitive and, and you will be successful in life. You don't have to own your own business. It might happen that way, but just it, it doesn't really matter. As long as you're doing what you really want to do and as long as you're passionate about it, just go and do it. If you can see a gap in the market, go and plug it because there's every chance that someone will want to use you to help them. And, and that's sort of the entrepreneurial streak again that, that, that comes out. But just be yourself and do what you're passionate about. 
and and don't be afraid to just move on and you know go and try new things just just be be confident to give things a go that's that's my advice just it's it's pretty pretty straightforward and it was the advice my parents always gave me they always supported me no matter what I did no matter what I wanted to try and do they just supported me and you know success in their mind was me just being me and so we've talked again a lot about the future in different layers and different angles. What about for Smart WFM? You've mentioned finding a gap. You've mentioned making, you know, being sort of in control yourself and the benefits of that. What does the next five to ten years look like for Smart WFM? Do you have a long-term direction, goals? Is it a geographical expansion? Uh, like I said, productizing your services? Is it extra services? Is it a eventually some sort of technology play that complements a service? Any or all of sort of the above? Yeah, pretty much any and all of the above, but uh, but I'll, I'll break it down. So I always had a view that when I started Smart WFM, I wanted to be the uh, Amazon.com for modern people innovation across the globe. So I wanted us to become more top of mind than the big four or traditional consultancies that have done that. And, and so the big picture view is still exactly the same. Uh, how are we going to do it? It's a little bit like the analogy I gave earlier. We're going to be the Starship Enterprise and we're just going to release more pods all around the globe so that they can just deliver all of these services that we're talking about. And then in terms of the the, the way in which we're going about it, we're, we're productizing every day. We're productizing all of our services and we are making all of those services on demand. We've got recurring revenue streams around the productization of those services which is all the things that, you know, we are talking about the investors and that earlier on, they're all the things that they want to see, but in a different sort of a way. Um, and I do have a software layer and I am looking for some uh, investment in this software layer and I've not been able to find it. And the software layer is actually, it's a business management software and what it's going to do is enable the user to sit down with the CEO, understand what business drivers that they are looking for understand how they want to, to grow their business, whether it's top-line revenue growth, looking at their people, concentrating on ESG, building diversity and inclusion, whatever it is, doesn't matter what it is, this software layer will be able to very quickly show them how to change their operating model within their business to achieve that. And it will also show CFO and the investors a traditional business case around the way in which you achieve it. It can be baseline, and as your business changes, and if COVID nineteen hits again, and you need to change the way in which you're operating and put a new business case together, you'll be able to do it in minutes, and you'll be able to rebaseline it. and And that's the, the bit of software that I'm really excited about. And I know that we can use this piece of software to help measure the return on investment for the trillions of dollars that we spend on labour, on people, on human capital across the globe every day. So the future's pretty bright. So I'm huh, I'm going to be doing this for a while yet. <laughs> and so you mentioned you haven't been able to get sort of investor interest yet. Is that just because it's sort of too early or are investors, it's not what they're used to looking at, this type of business versus a, like you said, more productized sort of business? Or, or what's the feedback been when, um, you know, investors are going through that journey of sort of raising capital? Yeah, so again, what traditional VC or PE wants, they want an exponential growth curve, right? Mm. That, that's all they want. Then they want to flog it, 
right? So that automatically discounts all of that type of investment into my product layer. Because what I want to do, I want to be able to prove to a government or a very large multinational corporation, here's how we can use this software layer to ensure that you're productive, you're compliant, and you get the best experience for your customers and your people. And again, I don't want to grow this part of the business based off an exponential revenue growth curve. I want to get it right so that we can maximise the value of people across the globe and do it once and just do it once only. I don't want to flip it. I don't want to flog it. I just want to do it right. So, so that's so. At the moment, there's a working prototype there. I know it works. I've invested again the whole thing myself to get the prototype up and running. But you know, the next step is a commercialization layer, and I and I need some help to do that. You know, I've got another couple of books coming. Mm. Um, growing smart WFM. I need some help to 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 get that bit sorted out. So, so would it be more like a family office type money? Like you said, where they're not trying to multiply it 10, 100x at some high net worth person who's interested in the concept and will see, you know, a, a growing business, but not someone like you said who's sort of trying to pump it up and flip it. It's someone that wants to roll their hands up and sit alongside me and do it. Okay, excellent. So very yeah. so active, active investor. Yeah, absolutely. It's got to be active. I don't, I don't passive investment, you know, is to me not what it's not the way my brain mm. works i'm i'm very about active investment okay and um any final thoughts or words for the audience be yourself love what you do live every day and enjoy it beautiful thanks so much jared good on you Derek. thank you for listening to the future of australia podcast if you liked the episode please subscribe and leave a review in itunes To learn more about the Future of Australia project, check out futureofaustralia.com. To reach out to Derek directly, you can email derek at futureofaustralia.com. That's D-E-R-E-K at futureofaustralia.com.